Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest in Canadian politics with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Lithium is becoming the new oil. And with that uptick in EVs, of course, Ontario has a role to play in there. How big a role? Well, we'll discuss that as well. And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington Report. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's a wheels up for the Prime Minister. He is off to the uh, east, uh, far east, that is, for the next couple of days. Uh, Global's Najud Al-Malis has the details for us. The trip comes at a time when the world is collectively facing security threats and economic uncertainty magnified by climate change. One of Canada's top priorities will be strengthening ties between the allied countries to address the converging challenges. The Prime Minister is scheduled to be in Seoul between May 16 and 18 after South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol's visit to Ottawa last fall. At the G7 summit, Canada is expected to seek the G7 members' cooperation on providing ongoing support to Ukraine as well as addressing climate change. Judan Lee, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, let's use that as our uh, starting out point here with our weekly look at what's going on in federal politics. And uh, to do that, please to welcome back to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Lori, good morning. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Good to be here. This, I, I know that Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives are going to make a big deal of this. There goes the Prime Minister off fly, flying away for another week, you know, with the gap problems at home, yada, yada, yada. But this seems to be part of a, a concerted effort by this government uh, to establish a stronger presence in the Pacific. I mean, we've spent a lot of time with NATO looking at Europe and certainly with Ukraine. But uh, it, it just seems as if they focused an awful lot on what's going on over there. Uh, why is this so important to the government at this time to, to, to make sure that, that we are also, I, I guess, you know, recognized as a Pacific nation, too? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's about a few things. There's definitely uh, for a while we've seen this government sort of like any like lots of governments try to figure out what the relationship is going to look like with China and how um, we might diversify our contacts in that part of the world and our connections and our relationships in that part of the world so as to try to lessen uh, reliance on China and the kind of centrality of China and global affairs. And so I think we're seeing the government do that. We are also at such a, a critical time, like the themes for the G7, you know, quite predictably are, you know, security, the economy and climate change. These are, you know, we are really, I mean, you can say that almost all the, all the time, I guess, but like, it just seems like at this point, wow, like we've got these really, really critical issues that are facing all governments. And so I think um, this is a particularly critical time for Canada to be in those conversations. I think Canada wants to take a leadership role in, in the global approach to climate change, for example. So we could actually see an opportunity for some real leadership if we want to step into that space. Yeah, on the other side of that coin, I, I'm getting the sense that, that those nations, especially Japan, uh, seem to be wanting to reestablish closer ties with North America at the same time. I know that uh, they've had discussions with the Biden administration, certainly. Uh, but with the move towards uh, electronic, electric vehicles, rather, and, and battery production, uh, there are automakers over there, too, that, uh, that are looking at Canada and saying, hey, maybe we can make a deal here. Yeah, and I mean, that's a really interesting position for Canada to be in. And I think, you know, given, um, you know, the last few years and our interactions with the U.S. and figuring out how our cooperative supply chains are going to look going forward. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think we've we've landed well, you know, even when there were times that it didn't wasn't sure where it was going to land, particularly in terms of the auto sector and whether we were going to be given some sort of status that we wouldn't be dis so disrupted by some of the things that the Biden administration were doing, like 
I think we, you know, we we did well there, but at the same time, it shows that we are in a, a fragile situation if we are overly reliant on one partner. And so to diversify a bit, to diversify with other partners who are thinking about climate change and are thinking about how we need to change things in order to move forward to a greener economy, this is an opportunity again for Canada to to sort of show up to some of those meetings and look at possibilities for different partnerships. This has definitely been a theme. You know, this is a, a key issue for this government. It's been a theme for um, the last number of international meetings the prime minister has had. We can think back to um, when the German chancellor visited and them having that press conference in Montreal and him talking about this being, you know, that we are at another industrial revolution. We are at a critical point for how we're going to manage the world's economy and how we're going to do things. And, you know, Canada at the time, it didn't seem to me that it was clear what Trudeau was going to do about that and whether he was going to step up or what. But now maybe it looks like they are. Well, the other element to this, too, is I guess the concern, well, South Korea, certainly, but also Japan, uh, about the, the, the muscle flexing that China's doing these days, you know, with flybys and, and military presence in the South China Sea. Uh, and, and they're probably in the same boat we are where we're looking at this and saying, look, we have to wean ourselves off of our trade with China right now. I mean, they've been very reliant on China for a number of different things over the last little while. And, uh, and Canada's got a role to play there, I guess, and, and say, hey, we've got some of those resources here too. Let's make a deal. Well, yeah. And I mean, that that type of thing, I'd like as you say, there's so many, so many issues plugged into the centrality and the power of China around the world. And, you know, some of that obviously has to do with security and uh, managing that as a as a kind of a, a possible threat. Uh, but also there's the issue of affordability in the supply chain. So if we're talking, you know, again, like I think it's becoming it's all it's always been kind of fake to treat issues as either, you know, foreign or domestic, global or domestic. They all are one and the same. And I think if we're really talking about the possibility of a diversification and a moving away from a reliance on China, what will that do to affordability? And, you know, sure, there's definite possibility for diversification of sectors here in Canada so that we can make different partnerships. We can do things differently. But what will the interim period look like? What will the transition period look like? It's it, it's going to be very interesting. It is. Uh, meanwhile, back at home, uh, Nano's polling over the weekend uh, indicates that uh, it, I, I, I don't think we want to go to the extent of saying Canadians are starting to warm up to Pierre Polyev because I don't see any indication of that at all. Uh, but as I mentioned in my commentary on CHML earlier this morning, uh, this reminds me an awful lot, Laurie, of around 2005, 2006, uh, when Stephen Harper eventually won that election in the early 2006. Uh, they, they weren't crazy about him either, but they just said, look, it, we're not, we don't like the guy, but you know what? He's better than this tired old government that we had here, being the, you know, the liberals who have been in power for so long. Is, is there a sense of deja vu here where the, the public just seem to be getting tired of, of what's gone on with the liberals over the last little while and simply saying, look, maybe we don't like the guy, but what the heck, you know, maybe a change is as good as a rest here. Yeah. I, like, I think this is, that's fascinating. And there's a few things going on. I mean, governments will hit a point of voter fatigue, no matter who they are, no matter how popular they were when they started. It's, and it's part of democracy that, you know, you, you will at some point start looking around for who else could do this. And, um, you know, I, I don't think this government is going to be immune from that. 
And I get the point too. Like, I think that's, I think it's fair to compare back to 2004, 2005 when the liberals were just done. And it was, you know, it was, it was, you know, 10, 11 years at that point. And they did the thing where they switched leaders, but Martin was still obviously a key part of the Kretchen administration. And so yeah. it was sort of the Kretchen government. And so it just sort of, I don't think it was a huge change enough to kind of make the party show up differently. However, um, the question I think we were making the comparison is, you know, is Polyev the same type of politician as Harper? And are we really in the same kind of political space um, in terms of how people relate to political parties? Like, I think people didn't like Harper a whole lot, but he also wasn't as polarizing as, as Polyev, I would say. And um, this was the first iteration with Harper of this merged party on the conservative side. And so this was the sort of mathematical calculation that if we put these parties together, we've got enough to beat the liberals. And Harper did some work to soften his image a bit and to send out messages differently after screwing up multiple times. And eventually he got it. And But it took him, you know, a, a couple of tries. Whereas Polyev, I think, is doing something very different. He's creating a very different, um, you know, assortments and, and of constituencies that are supporting him. I think his um, he's relying a lot more on a very different kind of message. I think Harper was able to to utilize more of the kind of party organization and the more, you know, he, he had really merged these parties, which, yes, was a kind of a takeover of the progressive conservatives. But still, Polyev is doing something very different where he's he's trying to appeal to people directly. He doesn't talk a whole lot about being conservative. He talks about wanting to be prime minister. And I'm not sure, um, even though Harper seemed to be able to get over the likability factor, I don't know if Pierre Polyev will. It doesn't, it doesn't mean he can't, but I just wonder, um, given some of the other polling data we've seen that indicates a lot of people don't necessarily have high, you know, voter awareness of what the conservatives would actually do if they were government. I wonder, given that factor, if people will still park their vote with somebody that doesn't have, um, you know, that they may not have decided they like him yet. Well, exactly. I, I saw the poll, I think it was an Ipsos poll a week or so ago, uh, that suggested that uh, a lot of the Canadians anyway that they polled said uh, they don't really believe that Polyev is, is as extreme an individual as, as some people make him out to be. Which, again, kind of reminds me of 2005. Remember the, the commercials, you know, there'll be tanks in the streets if Stephen Harper becomes prime minister. You know, everybody will have guns. And, and yeah. you know, everybody said, well, wait, wait, it's not, it wasn't that bad after all. It, I, aside from the 10 years of deficits and everything. But I mean, so they seem to almost trying to rationalize and saying, maybe this guy's not so bad. But they, again, your your point about them really not knowing what he's all about, I think is, is something that's causing a, a little hesitation right now where they say, I can't really support the guy right now because I really don't know who he is or what he's going to do to us or what, what he's going to do for Canada at this stage. Um, and I guess to your point, Laurie, it, it was pretty evident that Harper was trying to move, not the party to the middle, but at least try to attract some of those middle-of-the-road voters. Polyev just doesn't seem to, to even want to try. He's just saying, I am who I am. Yeah, exactly. I think he's trying to build um, a coalition of support using very different types of communication and uh, appealing to people who uh, maybe have not voted before or have never voted conservative before. Like he's, he's trying to put this together very differently. Whereas again, I think Harper was sort of trying to put together coalitions that previously oriented toward different, you know, manifestations of conservative parties. 
Polyev is trying to do something entirely different. It doesn't mean he won't do it, but it just, it, I, I don't know if, if in some ways that we are really in a different kind of political terrain. The other thing is, I think, even compared to 2005, which wasn't that long ago, um, we are so focused on leadership and brand now in politics as opposed to party. And so it's almost like... Um, I think part of what Polyev has been trying to do is create that celebrity persona for himself. Like he's, you know, he, he doesn't, um, he doesn't do necessarily the kind of typical, you know, mainstream media. He, he wants to use social media and appeal directly to people. He's trying to generate a brand for himself that can compete with Trudeau. And we're in that world where, where it's like Trudeau mania and Ford nation. Like these are the big, political like celebrity style brands that that win elections and so it kind of puts the parties in an interesting spot and at the same time of course i have to throw this in you got maxime bernier trying to get in in a by-election yeah. in manitoba you've got you know a possible new uh you know the the rick peterson's party that's that's possibly trying to form so really interesting stuff happening in the conservative space I'm wondering how that's going to play out uh, yeah. with, with Bernier, certainly with the extreme conservative vote, small C conservative vote, and and Rick Peterson's uh, the the center right Canadians as they call themselves these days. Right. Uh, I know our friend Tasha Kieran writes about it, uh, and as a matter of fact, she's you know touted as being one of the strong supporters of that too. Uh, is it, are we going to get to the point where there's going to be some sort of a, a, a split within that conservative party once again? The the moderates, the Rick Petersons, and the Berniers pulling at either side here. Where does that where does that leave Polyev? Well, that's it. I mean, I think um, it, it's too early to tell yet how any of those things might take shape. But I think, um, yeah, like, I mean, if he's if he's sort of going in this direction where he is really trying to, to appeal on the basis of a sense of, of discontent and, um, you know, people who really are then this, this, the sense of discontent is palpable. It's a very real thing. There are many people who feel like this country is not going in the right direction and Polyev is trying to harness that. But there are a lot of people who feel politically orphaned and feel like they want to vote for someone and none of the parties and none of the leaders is really saying and doing the things that they want to hear and see in order to be able to support them. And so will the um, the center ice conservatives be able to fill some of that space? It's interesting to me, though, that at this point, it doesn't really look like, you know, if, if we're living in a world of this celebrity brand politics, who are the center ice conservatives going to put up? That will be in that space that, you know, in the Trudeau and the Ford and the, the you know, increasingly Polyev, are they going to have a leader that commands that kind of, um, you know, attention that the, the party is built in the person's image? I mean, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. It just seems like in this in this day and age of politics where we're very leader focused, um, the centerized conservatives seem to be building on the basis of a set of values which was traditionally what parties were about and leaders came and went. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to see just how that actually comes and kind of an impact it's going to have. And, uh, and again, the, you know, the wild card here is we don't even know when the next election is going to be yet. So you know, what data are we preparing for here? We just don't know that. Uh, interesting times in Canadian politics. Laurie, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Take care, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We knew that uh, when the mega deal with uh, Volkswagen and the federal government and the Ontario government was signed a couple of weeks ago, that there were going to be some repercussions, clearly in political repercussions. You know, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives uh, say it's way too much money. You shouldn't be subsidizing big businesses, yada, yada, yada. But now we're starting to hear from other people in the industry 
And that could cause some problems. The mayor of Windsor, Ontario, says that he expects the federal government to live up to the deal that would see one of the world's biggest automakers build an electric vehicle battery plant in his area. Lisa Laporte has some details for us. Stellantis is accusing the federal government of not delivering on its agreement with the automaker and South Korean battery maker LG Energy Solution to build the plant in Windsor. Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins is calling on Ottawa to fulfill its commitment to make sure the deal goes ahead. Last year, Stellantis and LG committed $5 billion to build the plant in Windsor with support from all levels of government. A spokesperson for Federal Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne says negotiations with Stellantis are ongoing. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. So what is going to happen here? And uh, is, is that Volkswagen deal really going to be the, the, the bar that everybody's going to want to meet now? Bring our next guest into the conversation. Uh, Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Marvin, good morning. Great to have you back on the show today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about this. I'm getting the sense here that Stellantis and maybe maybe others to come are looking at this Volkswagen deal and say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. We want a piece of that, too. I, I know we have a deal, but uh, we didn't know that you were going to sweeten it this much. Correct. So uh, if you go back to the Volkswagen deal, which was to build this plant near St. Thomas, the first part of the deal is not unusual. Here are capital dollars to assist you in the construction. The federal government is kicking in roughly $750 million the provincial government, $500 million. That's not unusual, and that's very similar to the deals that we've struck with automakers as well as with Stellantis. The surprise was part two, that once you start producing and selling these uh, batteries, we're going to give you an ongoing subsidy. Uh, depends upon the volume produced, but that could be between $500 million and a billion dollars a year over 10 years. So nice people have added that up. And by the way, that subsidy is in American dollars. So if I convert it into Canadian dollars at today's rate, that could be a total subsidy of an additional $13 billion. And that's what's raised the eyebrows. Now, this seems to be what they had to do because they had to match provisions that uh, Mr. Biden had put out in his Build Back Better plan, fighting inflation, what have you, in the United States. And a key clause to that deal was that if those subsidies go away in the U.S., Canada is not obliged to continue those subsidies here. But in, in many conversations I had about that deal, the question was, well, if that if the Biden plan is the new benchmark, what about these other deals you signed? And will any of those people from the past come back and ask for sweeteners? Or will anyone looking for a deal in the future look for those sweeteners? And I thought that was actually the biggest new wrinkle to the deal, not that they gave the subsidies, but does this change the deal for everybody else? So I'm not surprised that Stellantis is saying, we want a little piece of that pie as well if we're going to bring you all those jobs to your area. And so the the, the mayor of, of Windsor is doing what I would expect a mayor to do, advocate for his people, and, and I don't blame him, but he doesn't have any, any dollars in this game. The question is, is the federal government going to kick in some more? I just, in the way of uh, timelines here, Marvin, if I recall... Uh, the Stellantis deal that they they signed to, to move to Windsor here and to, and to build the plant that that even predates the the, the Biden administration's uh, Inflation Reduction Act, doesn't it? So I mean that 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 pot of gold, such as it is, uh, was not even available then. They were talking about it, but it hadn't passed through the Congress at that stage. Am I right? You're absolutely correct. So, uh, but as life is, you know, no matter what, who you are, if you have a deal and then the terms seem to change for somebody else. You're at least going to try. You owe it to yeah. yourself to try to say, well, can I can I get a little piece of that action? 
The answer might be no. And then you have to decide, well, am I going to leave the first dollars on the table and walk away because I want the better deal or will I take what I can get when I can get it? So that being the case, though, now that that, pat, that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is passed in the states, uh, is Stellantis looking there and saying, wait a second, we could walk away from Windsor and get ourselves a nice deal in Alabama or Kentucky or someplace like that? They could well be thinking that. And I'm sure if they are negotiating with our federal government, this may be what they say. Well, look, we haven't put a shovel in the ground yet. We haven't started to build. I thought the deal was good. But now that the terms have all changed, we may walk away unless, unless you're prepared to step up and give us something like that. So I am sure both sides are, are doing their negotiating tactics to try to get the best deal they can. And, and look, again, let's be honest, uh, as we look forward to the year 2035, in essence, 12 years from now, the face of the auto industry will be dramatically changing. By that point, electric vehicles will become much more the norm than sort of the curiosity that they are today. So this is all about trying to set up the industry not for 2023, but for 2035. So, and I, I know people are going to look at Stellantis and say, well, this is this is not playing fair. But I mean, that's that's the industry. I mean, that's just the way things are these days. We've always been very competitive with the United States when it comes to trying to attract, especially uh, auto manufacturing. We've always had a disadvantage. And uh, now that we finally seem to want to ante up and get into the game right now, um, I, I don't blame anybody in a situation like this. Of course, they're going to try to get a sweetheart deal for themselves. Uh, they thought they had one in Windsor until you know this this the Biden administration came along and said, "Like, wait a second, there's a pot of gold down here too." So, uh, where how much pressure is on the feds right now, Mister Champagne, Minister Champagne, and others to simply say, "Okay, fine, let's rewrite the deal," or, or do they just have to tweak this a little bit? Well, that's really the question, Bill, isn't it? That uh, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of pressure on. Minister Champagne, and I'm sure some of that pressure even comes from the Ontario government because the car industry in Ontario is a, a big driver of our economy, and therefore we want a healthy car industry, not just today, but 10 years into the future. And so I'm sure he's getting phone calls from the provincial counterparts saying, step up, do the right thing, keep that deal here. It's going to mean a lot of transformation for us. Uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, you don't want to give away the farm and, and deals are good, but only up to a certain point. And then you can give too much away. Uh, and so, you know, there is this kind of a pressure. This is no different, for instance, than when Christian Freeland was negotiating or renegotiating the old NAFTA agreement to get the new USMCA. The American government saber rattled and wanted this concession, that concession. And she more or less held her ground and more or less got a better deal without having to give a lot up. So that's what Philip Champagne is doing. He's going to try to, to hear them, understand them, probably offer them something, but it might be less than what they say they want. And then he's just got to gauge that negotiation to see if he can keep it coming. By the way, in his defense, uh, he could also say to them, well, look, if you don't want to come here, the fact that Volkswagen has come here suggests there may be other people on the world stage. And whether it's true or not, he might say, I'm already talking with three other car companies that would like to come here. So look, you know, if you don't want it, that's just the kind of game they're playing at that level. How important is 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 the association with Detroit? I mean, that used to be you know the center for the automotive industry in North America. Anyway, I, I know that plants have been built all over the place these days, but there there always seem to be an affiliation with well, that's where the big three are, uh, and yep. and that's where and that benefited Windsor for the longest time too. Is that even a factor with Stellantis now? Um, it's a factor. I don't think it's the overarching factor. So, for instance, you could have asked, why did we strike a deal with Volkswagen? Look, look, that's not a historical person. But Volkswagen today is the number one 
selling automobile in the world. So on a global stage, and we really do have to think globally. Now Stellantis, and that's a funny name, most people can't get used to it, that's the old Chrysler, but it's merged with uh, uh, the Italian firm Fiat, and, and it's not the largest player on a global market, but it's certainly much more important today than when it was simply just Chrysler Dodge. Uh, and so again, if I'm the minister, I, I really want to strike the deals with the bigger players because they're having the better chance of surviving over the long run. Um, and I'm sure, remember again, uh, thanks to Jerry Diaz, we have struck deal to assemble electric vehicles from Ford, GM, Stellantis, and others in Ontario. So we've already got that part. And the question is going to be who's the dominant player in the batteries? And Bill, just on that front, although it's a Stellantis deal, their partner is a company you may have heard of called LG. I think that's actually the company that gets you a little more excited. LG, given its background, is probably much more the dominant player in electric batteries than Stellantis is, technically speaking. Uh, I don't know what kind of a poker player uh, Minister Champagne is, but uh, you know when they, they get down to the table here, uh, is it just a matter of, okay, we'll give you more Stellantis, or is he going to actually come back and say, okay, what do you, what do you, what else are you going to put on the table? If you want more money, show us why. And show, I mean, did, right. did they get down to the nitty gritty there and say, you know, this has got to be give and take? Absolutely. So the correct thing when you're doing these kinds of negotiations is you don't simply say, oh, did I just say 1 billion here? Let me give you 2 billion and you haven't changed anything. So it, we call that the old fashioned term for it is horse trading. You know, I, I might be open to giving you more and sweetening the deal, but then what are you going to give me instead? Maybe it's a, a concession around duration that you're committing to being in the Windsor area for at least a decade, or you're committing to do a minimum volume. You're not just going to build one electric battery, but you're prepared to commit to doing a million batteries a year or whatever it happens to be. For sure, there's horse trading on both sides. Therefore, Bill, again, long story short here, I will not be shocked if in two months from now, three months from now, we hear that there's a revised deal with Stellantis and when it's presented to us publicly, it will probably involve more incentives to Stellantis, but then on the other hand, on the other hand, more benefits to the local community. And maybe that's not such a bad outcome after all. Exactly. Uh, we'll be watching to see who, who blinks first, I guess. Marvin, a pleasure to get you on here. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Byron Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. South of the border, things are heating up considerably. I mean, the, the, the abortion issue, uh, which we thought was going to be a key issue, seems to have more and more prominence almost by the day now. We're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. But we do know that uh, uh, there was a, a large crowd uh, on hand uh, just the other day as uh, the governor of uh, Carolina, actually, Governor Roy Cooper affixed his veto stamp to a bill in an unconventional public display. Now, the governor has now set himself up in a showdown with the legislature that actually wanted to move ahead with a number of the very controversial pieces of, uh, of abortion legislation. Basically, this is all, of course, due to the uh, the fallout from Roe versus Wade some months ago. And uh, this was the scene on uh, the steps there as the governor signed his veto. Obviously, a huge crowd at, uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, as the governor signed that. But uh, uh, there's more to come on this one because now he's at odds with the legislature, which wanted to hold up an awful lot of the Republican-themed uh, anti-abortion activities that have gone on over the last little while. And, of course, there's a lot of it going on in Washington, too, to try to make some sense of where we're going on this. Uh, 
pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. This is this is one example of many that's going on in state legislatures right now, uh, all to do with the, the Supreme Court decision some time ago about Roe versus Wade. Uh, and and you got to know, Reggie, that uh, that the, the the justices that actually voted to basically say that uh, this is, should be a state issue, not they they had to know this was all going to happen, didn't they? Yeah, of, of course they did. Um, and I think it's also important to note that when we're talking about um, Roy Cooper in North Carolina, still kind of uh, a purple state, it has a little bit more red in it, but it is also still Democrat at the leadership level and very Republican uh, when it comes to representation around the state, at least when it, you're talking about the North Carolina legislature. And the fact that Roy Cooper vetoed that controversial bill, it now sets up, you know, what is likely going to be a veto override in North Carolina because there is a GOP supermajority. And that is why there is so much of this being pointed back to the U.S. Supreme Court when there was something that allowed the entire country to operate as one. The court then threw it back to the state level, knowing exactly what they were doing, because you are now seeing states that are in this situation where there are so many Republicans that it's impossible for um, for even a Democratic governor to break through that, uh, that this, you know, this really does potentially um, make it more difficult for states to be able to move forward on an issue like abortion. And this potentially could become yet another moment for Democrats to step up and thrust this back into the 2024 election as strong as it was in 2022. Well, and you juxtapose what happened in North Carolina with uh, with what's going on in Texas right now, in North Texas District Court there, where one judge, uh, Matthew Kaczmarek, uh, issued a ruling that was going to halt the Food and Drug Administration's approval of that widely used abortion pill. Uh, and and when you put all this together, it, it's a, a very confusing and very conflicted message here. And now Planned Parenthood has jumped into this right now, and, and they've issued a statement basically saying it's about time to reform the whole judicial system in the country. Yeah, look, and Planned Parenthood is driving this, but this conversation has been kicking around in the United States uh, for some time, and particularly from before Joe Biden won uh, the presidency back uh, in 2020. There was a push amongst the progressive side of the Democratic Party to say, look, we need some, uh, 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 kind of court reforms, both at the state level uh, and at the Supreme Court level. And there was a push here to try and get uh, additional justices put on the bench, you know, so-called court stacking, uh, because there is such a, a right-leaning tilt on the bench. And there was a fear that, you know, has sort of come true for many, uh, that this could alter the way that the United States moves forward for generations. So having Planned Parenthood in this mix now, uh, really pushing for a change in the way that the Supreme Court looks, a change in the way uh, that district courts look so that people can't, quote unquote, go judge shopping to find somebody who will be sympathetic to their cause and then potentially override something uh, on a national level. This is something that is going to, A, stir up emotions amongst many Democrats. It's going to stir up anger across Republicans. But we now have to wait to see what any kind of reaction will be from the White House because Joe Biden really pushed back on you know changing the number of justices that sit at the Supreme Court. Well, and I know that the whole debate started, I guess, even when Barack Obama wanted to replace uh, a, a member who had passed away. Scalia, I believe it was at the time, and 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 of course, uh, Mitch McConnell wouldn't allow that to happen. Uh, and they, they, it is within their purview; they can do this if they want to. But is there a political appetite for that to happen, Rich? 
Well, I mean, look, the president um, at the time, but the, this kind of was being pushed to him, created this, you know, this this kind of subcommittee or this this organizational group to try and look at court reform. And like many of these groups do, they kind of do work and then it fizzles off into nowhere. Uh, look, there's a political appetite for court reform uh, amongst Democrats and particularly amongst the progressive side of the Democratic Party. And, and some of this has nothing to do with um, issues surrounding, you know, um, decisions that are coming out linked to something like abortion. Some of this also stems back to issues uh, about, you know, Clarence Thomas and the controversies that have spun up around him and the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't really operate under a, a code of ethics here. So there is, you know, even if it's not just, ref, you know, adding more justices, there's a call here to reform how the court operates and ensure that it's doing so in a kind of fair and just manner and is not, you know, leaning itself into the the political leanings of one party or the other. But the problem is, is there's not a broad overall political appetite for this because, you know, everybody has their their key issues that they want to lock into. And the, the president has really kind of taken a step back from trying to mandate what he sees as a co-equal branch of government should do. Congress is also not quick to jump when it comes to trying to change the way that court reform works. Well, and one of the key elements that Planned Parenthood is calling for, and, and you've reported on this in the past, anybody who's talked about Supreme Court uh, reform in the past has always talked about this, is term limits. I mean, no, these these judges are appointed for life, essentially. And the Clarice Thomas situation, I think, really just kind of brings that to the fore once again, doesn't it? I mean, there's a, a real concern here about, about what Thomas has done and basically the fact that, that he can say and do whatever he wants right now, and apparently so can his wife, because uh, you can't touch him in any way, shape, or form. And and that there's no kind of repercussions that come down from the chief justice uh, at the same time, especially when there are calls uh, for some kind of potential investigation. Look, I mean, even if we want to tie this back to um, to to the abortion matter into Roe v. Wade, there was a leak from within the Supreme Court that ultimately uh, gave an idea as to how the court was going to decide. There was an investigation into that, and it you know never really was publicized. Not much came out of it. We don't have any clues uh, as to where that came from. Uh, and well, you know, not all courts need to be transparent because obviously there are issues within a court that need to stay within a court. Uh, the fact that you have this 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 Supreme Court. Uh, and this, you know, tenure under John Roberts, which is, you know, the, the trust in the courts is being eroded because of the way that it operates to say, look, we want term limits put on some of these justices because it, you know, will ensure that even if they're not going to be removed or impeached, because, again, that takes a political appetite, that they will not be there forever. Uh, and look, Democrats learn this the hard way when you have a justice uh, who gets to a certain age and is not taking themselves off the bench. They potentially die while they are uh, still on the bench. Uh, and, you know, you afford the potential for another party to be able to put somebody in that seat. And that's what we saw happen with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Donald Trump was able to appoint yet another justice. So there are growing calls for term limits here because they feel that uh, it's going to, you know, help fix what they see as an ethics problem on this court. Well, and it's going to be an interesting debate. Uh, and as you mentioned, the president seems to have backed off on this one just a little bit uh, because he's, he's got other things to worry about these days, including the debt ceiling. My understanding, Reggie, is uh, there's going to be another meeting with the president and, and congressional leaders this week to try to get that ironed out. Are they, are they any closer? Well, I mean, look, the, the president was supposed to have a meeting last week that was postponed or canceled. It's now set to happen again uh, later this week. He's, I mean, the president says that he's optimistic that a deal 
can be reached. But the White House is still insistent that they're not going to negotiate, saying that budget time was the time for negotiating, not when we're quickly running out the clock here to potentially defaulting on debts. You know, I don't I think the president is is trying to, you know, parse his words here to ensure that, you know, he doesn't lead the the markets or the globe, uh, the global, you know, um, uh, kind of economy into some murky waters here. But ultimately, the clock is ticking here and the X date is is quickly approaching. Uh, and there are concerns here that if the White House, if the president opts to negotiate here, he is going to give leverage to uh, to Republicans. And there are some Democrats that are concerned here that that Republicans could ultimately take advantage of a situation that they put themselves in by passing a budget that they don't they they now do not want to pay for. Well, and and I guess that's the the politics of this, isn't it? As you've been reporting, this is not just a matter of signing, uh, you know, a new debt ceiling because I mean you can do that with a stroke of a pen, essentially. But the Republicans uh, have basically, I guess, given the president a list of things. So these are the budget cuts we want you to make, and there's some some pretty substantial items in there that uh, that Biden, I guess, is uh, just saying it's it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I don't know where they're going to find any middle ground here, Reggie. Well, and it's it. I mean, look, Republicans are going to say. Many years ago, under the Obama administration, uh, the White House at that point tasked then Vice President Joe Biden to sit down with congressional leadership to try and hammer out uh, a way to avoid defaulting on the debt. And in 2011, Joe Biden set, negotiated with Republicans and ultimately the default never happened. You know, the, the credit downgrading took place for the United States because they got so close. Uh, but there was a, a deal. There was a negotiation. And it was one of the first and few times that that's ever happened before. Now you have the same president saying, well, look, uh, that was a different time. We don't want to negotiate. You know, this is not the time to do that. Uh, and it sets a dangerous precedent here. It really is unclear how far this is going to go, whether or not the president is going to have to give in on something on his budget or potentially lead this country towards a default, which he will say, the White House will say, this is on Republicans. Republicans are the ones trying to hold this country hostage. Republicans and potentially the voters may say, well, look, this is on the president because this is the president's administration. This really is a no win, regardless of how this goes for this administration today. Uh, very quickly, uh, uh, there's still a lot of follow of course, about Donald Trump's appearance on CNN last week. Uh, the, the ratings are out, and he said, you know, it was an overwhelming success. Uh, there was an increase there, but not to the extent that maybe he was hoping for. Uh, but the numbers here uh, indicate that uh, this really has emboldened him, hasn't it, Reggie? I mean, is the, the solidifying of, of the support that he has within the GOP, uh, you know, the, the, the MAGA people, uh, really seems to be a, a factor here to the point where DeSantis and others have got to be looking at this and saying, is, is this guy untouchable now as he goes towards the nomination? Look, there's a fear within the Republican Party that they do not that they're 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 afraid still to go after the president because the former president because the numbers are so high. And look, Trump is polling on the plus side of 50 percent. And the next person down is Ron DeSantis, who's not in, is quickly stumbling into that territory and should do so in the next couple of weeks, we're told. Uh, but he's in and around 20 percent. And I think the broader question here is not only a how do Republicans deal with the fact that Trump is still so high on the list, but what is it within the base that ha that they're, they're they're still so enamored with uh, this president? Look, Donald Trump has a losing streak that extended to the 2020 election and through most of the people that he backed in 2022. Uh, he has a number of court cases that he has now lost, but his, his voters and the base are either compartmentalizing or internalizing these differently and manifesting the realities to what they want to see. 
The question is, how does the Republican Party break through to the base to allow them to see the losses that are lining up before and behind them and bring them over into their wheelhouse? It really is difficult, and it it is it's a question that few people are able to answer as to what the base sees in Donald Trump that they continue to stand behind him regardless of what the situation is. But the reality here is, is you know, there's enough dirt that you can throw at Trump, as you say, just because of some of the court cases, the, the judgment that came down last week, et cetera. Uh, and that's the way they play politics in the States these days is, is to throw mud or make it up if you can't, haven't got anything solid to throw at them. Uh, and nobody seems to want to do that. If, if they're going to, you know, treat the guy with kid gloves, uh, there's probably no, no chance for a guy like a DeSantis or somebody else to challenge, is there? I think they're going to try. Someone like DeSantis will try. You saw him over the weekend uh, in key states that are key to, um, you know, the Republican ticket. Uh, he is set to set up shop in Tallahassee. We've got disclosures that are going to have to come from Ron DeSantis. He thinks that he's the person who can go after Donald Trump. He used the word loser over the weekend to talk about Donald Trump. But what does that do? It emboldens Donald Trump and kickstarts the, fa- uh, the, the kind of name calling and the ability to drum up the base. Look, money ultimately is going to talk here. And Donald Trump seems to have copious amounts of it to be able to throw at the people that are actively trying to go after him. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, whether someone can catch up to him, that's to be seen. It looks like we may actually have a bit of a, of a you know, a primary on our hands between Trump and potentially DeSantis here. But if the numbers go where they're going and kind of sit where they are right now with Trump plus 50 percent in the support, this once again could be Trump's to walk away with regardless of all of the things that he has had to deal with, not just in his past presidency, but in his personal and his business life that are starting to catch up with him. Uh, it's it's fascinating to see just how this is going to roll out over the next uh, long little while. Of course, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National about this. Reggie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Have a good week. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.